I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, happiness. What makes us feel good and thrive in life? And how do we define that feeling? Happiness seems to fall into two big buckets. One is called hedonic well-being from hedonism. And it's yeah. the kind of happiness that we feel moment to moment when we're having a good time. But then there's the other kind, it's called eudaimonic well-being, and it's that sense that my life has meaning, my life is worthwhile. And later, the psychology of happiness, and how our relationship to time could be a key factor. I encourage folks to actually track their own time and write down what they are doing, and also rating, coming out of that activity on a 10-point scale, how they feel. And that will allow you to pick up on what are those ways of connecting and so socializing that are truly satisfying and truly fulfilling. The research secrets and science behind leading a happy life. That's coming up on Life Examined. This week we're re-examining a topic near and dear to all of our hearts, happiness. In case you hadn't noticed, unlocking the secrets to a happy life has been the subject of numerous podcasts, books, TED Talks, and more recently college curriculums. In fact, one of our guests, Professor Lori Santos's happiness course, became the most sought-after class in Yale's 300-year history. But examining happiness is hardly recent. The idea of hedonic happiness dates back to the 4th century BC. The ancient Greeks, like Plato and Aristotle, all spoke about achieving a greater sense of purpose and well-being. Fast forward a few millennia, and what's the latest research on happiness? And is there any guide to making the right choices for long-term well-being? Author and Zen priest Robert Waldinger says the Harvard Study of Adult Development, one of the longest-running studies on happiness, may hold some of the answers. It started in 1938 and followed the lives of 724 men from Boston neighborhoods, including Harvard. Waldinger is also a psychiatrist at Massachusetts General Hospital, a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and the author most recently of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Robert Waldinger, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. This is such an important study that I think some folks know about, but the fact that it's 80 years old, I think is something that really is remarkable. Maybe you can give us a little background into why this uh, this kind of longitudinal study on happiness began in the first place. It started as a study of what makes people thrive, which was totally unusual because there had been so much investigation of what goes wrong in human life as we develop. And so this was a way of trying to understand the conditions that predicted who was going to be happy and healthy as they went through their lives. Mm. Who were some of the characters that were putting this together? And I mean, they must have been uh, kind of wonderful and unusual, the fact that they decided to do this. Well, it was actually two studies that didn't know about each other when they started. One was a study of Harvard College sophomores, 19-year-olds, who were thought by their deans to be fine, upstanding young men. And um, and the, it was a physician at the Harvard Student Health Service who said, I'd like to study normal young adult development. And then the other study was started by a Harvard Law School professor and his wife, a social worker, and they were interested in juvenile delinquency. And they were particularly interested in why some kids from really troubled and disadvantaged families stayed on good developmental paths and didn't get into trouble. So it was these two studies, and then they were combined in the 1970s 
uh, to the study we have today. Wow. So when they were combined, who were some of the people that were in it? I, I assume it grew to folks that were not just sophomores at Harvard, but but who eventually got included in this study? Yeah. Well, so Harvard sophomores and inner city Boston boys. Yeah. And then we included women. So we brought in all the spouses. Um, and when they got, you know, when they grew up and and got married, and most of them did marry. Um, and then we reached out to the second generation and included all of their children, more than half of whom are women. So now we have um, two generations, and actually we studied the parents of our first generation. So really three generations of people, mm. 724 families followed now for 85 years. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, as a psychiatrist and as, and you're speaking to a therapist, we both know that there's not exactly a, a blood test or a brain scan that shows what happiness is. So we have to measure it through um, just through how people feel um, and through subjective experience. And so I'm curious how the study was able to actually tap into how people were feeling and uh, how that data eventually was collected. Well, you're absolutely right. There is there's no blood test. But what we do is we come at happiness from a whole lot of different angles. So sure, of course, we ask people, are you happy? How happy are you? Um, but we also ask other people, we ask their partners, we ask their kids, uh, we follow their work lives. Uh, but then in addition, we're kind of a history of science. So um, now we look at happiness in terms of uh, genetic influences. We draw blood for DNA. Hmm. And if it, what's so cool about that is that DNA wasn't even imagined in 1938 when the study began. We put people into the brain scanners and look at their brains as, as we show them different kinds of images. We, we bring them into our lab. We stress them out deliberately and watch how quickly they calm down from stress mm -hmm. as a way to understand well-being in terms of stress management. Mm -hmm. So there are all these different windows on the same phenomenon of well-being and happiness. Okay. So here, here's the big question before we go any further. How do we define well-being and happiness? I, I bet you come at this from a lot of angles as a psychiatrist and also as a Zen practitioner, which I want to get to later. But um, in terms of the study, how is that word defined? Well, actually, research uh, has something to say about this, that, mm. that happiness seems to fall into two big buckets. One is called hedonic well-being from hedonism in it. And it's yeah. the kind of happiness that we feel moment to moment when we're having a good time. But then there's the other kind. It's called eudaimonic well-being. And it's that sense that my life has meaning, my life is worthwhile. And the, the best example of that is what a, a mother gave me, a, a mother of young children. She said, she was reading the book Goodnight Moon to her daughter for the seventh time before <laughs> her daughter fell asleep. Uh -huh. And her daughter said, Mommy, I, I read it again, read it again. And she, the mom was saying, you know, I was exhausted. I'd had mm -hmm. such a long day. The last thing I wanted to do was read Goodnight Moon one more time. Was I having fun? No. But was it the most meaningful thing I could imagine doing right then? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so that's the difference between hedonic well-being and that kind of sense of okayness and purpose and meaning.
I, and I love the word uh, eudaimonic or eudaimonia. I mean, we often hear it in the philosophical realms, relating, uh, you know, relating to Aristotle and uh, the idea of what a full and a rich life is. And hedonism also comes. So it's it, I, these are both kind of nods to, I think, some of our early Greek thinkers, aren't they? Yes, they are. Because it was the same human life back then, right? Yeah. And so what we're really doing is we're studying the same thing that the ancients did and in the book that we're just publishing, The Good Life, we use a lot of ancient wisdom because we want to convey that these are age-old concerns, age-old ideas. And what we're doing is simply putting science behind these ideas. And also, it's, it's really important to note that oftentimes the hedonic and the eudaimonic aspects of lives don't arrive at the same time. So, you know, one person can experience all of one of those and another one of all of the other. I mean, so before we go any further, I mean, I have so many questions about this. It's my sense is maybe we need a little bit of both in our lives. What's your take on that? I think we do. I think the 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 sense is that everybody needs some of both, but that some of us prioritize one more than the other. Some of us are real party animals and that's what we prioritize, you know, yeah. having a good time. And some for some of us, the parties aren't as important as that sense of life having meaning. And and so I think that we are different. You know, each of us is different in, in terms of how much we care about these different forms of happiness. I, I'm fascinated by the science here and how you began to look at it because I, I had never thought necessarily of happiness being a genetic component of our lives. I mean, but, may, but maybe there's more there. So talk about what you learned or the study kind of began to learn in the process of studying this from a scientific point of view. Well, what we know from science is that we are all born with certain temperamental styles. You know, some of us, to use the Winnie the Pooh analogy, some of us are Tiggers and bouncy, and some of us are Eeyores and kind of sad. Right. And, and that that's kind of a baseline. And actually, there's a psychologist, Sonia Lubomirsky, who has calculated what she estimates to be the kind of inborn genetic contribution, how much of that is determines our happiness. Her estimation is that it's about 50% hmm. of our happiness is determined by inborn factors. And about 10% is determined by what our life circumstances are right now. And then the remaining 40% is under our control, which hmm. is actually a lot. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. 50% though is a fairly striking number. And I have a feeling that parents would have interesting things to say about this in terms of noticing one, their child's kind of disposition at a young age and the extent to which that changed or not over time. But, um, but it's true. I think if we, again, if we look around, we probably do have people in our lives that have always had maybe a sunnier, happier disposition ever since they were kids. I mean, I can think of a couple examples in my own life off the bat. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that can move and can change and we can actually learn how to be happier, but that baseline of happiness probably stays with us most of our lives. So um, wh where did this study take us in terms of understanding what leads us towards a fulfilling and happy life? Well, it took us to a place we didn't believe at first. Mm. So we we knew that taking care of your health was important. And it turns out to be very true that, um, you know, 
uh, regular exercise, not abusing alcohol or drugs, not smoking, eating right, getting healthcare, all of that matters tremendously for our well-being uh, and our longevity. But the surprise was that the quality of our relationships predicts who's going to be happy and healthy as they get older. Hmm. Um, what we And the reason we didn't believe it is we thought, okay, we can see why having good relationships with other people would make you happier. But how could it get into your body and predict whether you're likely to get coronary artery disease hmm. or arthritis? Like how could that how could that happen? And so we've spent the last 10 years doing what many other research groups have been doing, which is studying this, this question of the mechanism by which relationships keep us healthy as we go through life. Well, say more about that. I mean, what, what did you find looking closer at the importance of relationships? Mm. The best hypothesis that we have some evidence for is that relationships are really good stress regulators. Uh, that all of us have stress every day, right? Mm -hmm. Things come along that we don't expect. And when I have something stressful happen, I can literally feel my body start to rev up. You know, my heart rate revs up and other changes happen in my body. That's normal. That's, that's called the fight or flight response. We all want to have it so our bodies can get ready to meet a challenge. But then... Our bodies are meant to come back to equilibrium, to yeah. baseline. And what I find, so for example, if I have something upsetting happen and I go home and I can talk to someone about this, I can literally feel my body calm down. But what happens if you don't have anybody like that? Hmm. What happens if you don't have a, a warm relationship, a good listener, someone you can call or, or talk to when you get home? What we find is that those people stay in a kind of chronic fight or flight mode where they have higher levels of circulating stress hormones. They have higher levels of inflammation that breaks down many different body systems. And so that's how we think that good relationships protect us and that the absence of those good relationships can start breaking down our health. So we know that relationships are important, but maybe you can say if there are certain types of relationships that are important or more important. I mean, does this mean one needs to have an intimate partner or friendships? What, what did this study say about the quality of relationships or the types? Yeah, well, it, you don't have to have an intimate partner. It turns out that one of the most important things we need is that person who we know will be there for us in times of stress. So we asked our study participants, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? And many of them could list several people they could call, but some people in our study couldn't list anybody that they mm -hmm. could call, not a soul on the planet. Some of those people were married and they couldn't list anybody. Oh gosh. And yeah. so, right. So what we believe is that all of us need at least one person in the world, who's that go-to person who will have our back. Um, but then beyond that, what we find is that all kinds of relationships give us this benefit that we're talking about. So we get little hits of well-being from our casual relationships, from the person who makes us our coffee in the morning at Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks, right? Mm. From the person who checks us out at the grocery store, from the person who delivers our mail. And that's why 
having casual conversations really is enlivening and energizing for many people, not mm. for everybody. There are people who, who are more shy and that's just fine. They're, they're not people who benefit from that, but all these relationships, you know, family, friends, work relationships for sure. And these more casual ties, they all give us this benefit. You know, it's funny. I, I think about the times in my life where I was the most alone and probably felt the worst. It's maybe between jobs oftentimes. And mm -hmm. and I remember what I missed about my work environments. There, there were a lot of things I didn't miss about them, but the things that I did miss were not necessarily my close colleagues, but the colleagues that I would run into and that I probably took for granted in terms of the importance in our social interactions in which they played in my life. The, you know, the, 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 the fellow who was just at the front desk and we would have the same joke every day at 8 a.m. or somebody I'd bump into, you know, while getting a cup of coffee. Like those are the little ones I think that we tend to take for granted because we assume, you know, only a best friend or a partner really matters. But I think that this new research is showing that those things should not be taken for granted. If anything, we should try and cultivate more of them in our lives. Yes. And in fact, there's, there's a study that I love that showed this, that in fact, people were about to take the subway and the researchers assigned people randomly. Either you were going to do what you normally do on the subway, keep to yourself, yeah. you know, on your phone, listening to music, whatever. And the other people were assigned to talk to a stranger. And they asked people, how much are you going to enjoy this? And the people who were assigned to talk to a stranger thought they were not going to like it. Yeah. So then they completed their assignment. And afterwards, it turned out that the people who were assigned to talk to a stranger were way happier at the end of it than the people who kept to themselves. Mm -hmm. So we're not good at predicting what's going to make us happy all the time. And that these casual conversations really do liven us up. And I'll go even further with an encouragement here. If somebody calls you or you call them, sometimes, I don't know about you, but I get this kind of little feeling of nervousness, like, oh my gosh, we haven't spoken in a while. Should I pick up or should I yeah, respond? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Respond, pick up, see what happens. Yes. Like, I yes. think you might actually feel pretty good if that friend who surprises you, you, you end up carving out the time and have the conversation, right? But there's this little leap of faith in these, uh, in these interactions that, that I think is, are kind of daunting for some people. You know what I mean? Well, absolutely, because it is unpredictable. Right. You know, that that we we are all moving targets, right? We're all constantly changing. And so we don't know who's the, what's this person going to be like when I call or if I pick up the phone. Yeah. Um, and so it is meeting a little bit of an adventure of the unknown when we connect with a person, even someone we know well, because everybody is different from day to day. And But that is also the thing that keeps our relational life exciting and keeps stimulating our brains mm -hmm. as you know so so what we know is that social engagement actually keeps our brains stronger as we get older and it's probably because of this little bit of unpredictability that's always there in human interaction mm. You know, it's interesting how you said that for some people, even if they have a spouse, they may not feel like they have social connection, which is something I, I've come across a lot. And I do understand that. And I mean, it's a reminder that even if we have what people think is a, a relatively healthy nuclear family, that that may not be enough, right? Oh, yes. And in fact, it's a myth that we're supposed to get 
everything from one person, for sure. example. You know, right. you can we can believe that it's all supposed to be there in our primary intimate relationship and that there's something wrong if if we need other things. That's not true. That that actually the the most stable intimate relationships are ones where people let each other get things from other friends, from other relatives, right? Mm. And it's just kind of a, there's a myth of my soulmate that can make people feel like there's something wrong if if they need more people in their yeah. life. And, and when I put my therapist cap on here, another thing that jumps out to me about that is that oftentimes, and, and I've been you know very guilty of this as well, when you couple up and you're living really closely with someone, sometimes that kind of social fitness that you're talking about turns off. You can kind of yes. fall, I think, into this kind of, uh, I don't know, feeling of not needing to reach out to friends. You know, you have this kind of pretty nice life at home, but that, as they say, there's that great, you know, that great idea that even when you're married, you need to keep dating, you need to keep getting out, you need to keep experiencing life. Whereas I find that people that I know that have been, let's say, single for longer stretches of their life are incredibly facile when they go out and making conversations and making friends. So it's almost these two different muscles that need to be, you know, uh, flexed. I mean, one I think is, is maintaining a relationship, but another is, like you said, the social fitness, the going out and having the courage to do that, which I think is really important. Yes. And remembering to do it because, you know, especially for people who are maybe raising a family and maybe also holding down a job and maybe even also taking care of aging parents, that mm. kind of crunch, it can be really, it can seem impossible to do this kind of reaching out and connecting. And so it needs to become more of a priority if we're gonna do it, but it is possible. And, and it allows us not to turn around one day and say, oh my gosh, I don't have any friends, mm -hmm. which many people do. Some, sometimes men more than women are likely to let their, their social ties lapse. And so it's really important to see this as something you want to invest in and nurture, even when you're busy. Well, certainly the world has changed over the 80 years in which this study was conducted. And that, I mean, I think perhaps the biggest thing that may disrupt or enhance relationships, depending on how you, how you think about it, would be the internet or screens, technology. So is there any sense that happiness has shifted over those 80 years because of changes in technology specifically? Yes, there is. That we've become more isolated because of screens, first with television. And then later with com computers and smartphones and tablets and, and certainly social media. What the research finds is that, first of all, we know screens aren't going away, but research tells us that how we use social media matters a lot. Mm -hmm. That if we use social media to actively connect with each other, that's a positive thing for our connections. On the other hand, what the research finds is that if we are passive consumers of social media, we get more depressed, we get more anxious, we feel like we're missing out more. So if we scroll through somebody else's Instagram feed and we see all their beautiful photos of vacations right. and parties, we start to feel depressed and demoralized. Yeah. And so it's passive use versus active use that yeah. we think makes a difference. Well, in a sense, the, if we go back to our earlier conversation, screens maybe provide a very short shot of that hedonic pleasure, but it doesn't 
I think seem to last very long or have a very big imprint depending on the media that you're using. Yeah. The other thing I think people can do is do a little test, like spend 10 minutes doing something on online and then check in with yourself. Is my energy lower? Am I feeling more demoralized, more closed off, or am I feeling more open and more energized? And those little tests that, you know, checking in with yourself can tell you where to direct your attention mm. um, online and where to turn away from. Do you think there's also the opportunity for people to just kind of, I don't know, zone out and enjoy a screen time or, you know, a silly movie once in a while and that that actually can be helpful too if it's used in the right way? Oh, totally. I do it. <laughs> my, <laughs> my wife and I, you know, my, my wife loves the great British baking show. Uh -huh. And so sometimes I find myself watching people bake elaborate cakes sure. and, and it's like a way to zone out. And, and I actually love that. Um, you know, and I'm also a Zen practitioner, so I paying attention is important to me, but sometimes I just need um, a way to let my mind chill and, mm -hmm. and using something like a, um, you know, a, a delightful show about people baking things is just fine for me some yeah. evenings. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've led me to exactly where I want to go next, which is the fact that you are a Zen practitioner. And that's a really big part of your life. And I mean, I think for a lot of people on the outside, they look at a Zen meditator and be like, wow, that's, that's a life of solitude. Um, that's an ascetic life. That's not necessarily one that feels very socially engaged. So I'll, I'll hand it over to you and say, well, what, what is, what does Zen Buddhism teach us about happiness? And does that relate at all to the study that you've been telling us about? It does teach us about happiness. It teaches us that there's a way to accept what life brings that makes life feel basically okay, even when it's hard. And meditation can do that. Meditation doesn't stop life from being hard and painful at times, but it gives us a different orientation toward it. Um, an orientation that says, look, this is the truth of life for everybody, right? Mm. There's, there's pain, there's unhappiness, and there's great joy, and there's boredom and, and everything in between. Um, and so I think that, that what... Zen practice is is not austere at all. It's actually a way to get acquainted with the richness of life. So sometimes I'll just sit and look at a tree in my front yard and I'll see, I'll try to find everything I can about that tree. It sounds ridiculous, but to spend five, 10 minutes doing that, you begin to marvel at what this thing is that you look at and you take for granted all day, every day. And so I think what Zen practice does is it makes us more attuned to how miraculous it is just to be alive in the world. Mm. Yeah. How, how has the Zen practice, I think, changed your life? I mean, this is something you still seem to be very engaged in. I'm, I'm curious yeah. for a little personal reflection. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's made a huge difference in my life. Um, it's helped me to worry less about things that don't matter. I mean, I got into Zen because, you know, look, I'm a Harvard professor mm. and I, you know, I'm into achievement and everybody around me is into achievement. And I realize that most of this doesn't amount to a hill of beans, that yes, doing good things in the world matters tremendously, but that getting an award 
you know, that's going to feel good for about 10 minutes and then I'll move on. And also that most of this passes away. You know, I'm not going to be here 50 years from now and almost nobody will remember me. So why are we all so concerned with achievement and uh, amassing wealth and all those things? And Zen has really helped me both to understand it and to accept in my own life those yearnings and then kind of put them away. Mm. And and be more present with with just what's here right now, with the the fun of talking to you, of having this conversation, right? Mm. You know. Oh, totally. Yeah, I remember it was my father that once said that you know even if you were you know a United States senator, right, that's so prestigious, but you know you've passed away, your generations in the past, that you're kind of almost at that point a little footnote in history. And yeah. not necessarily taking on kind of the grand persona or legacy that one might, you know, thought they would have or she would have, which is not to say one should not go after such big things. But as a Harvard professor saying that, you know, yeah, this is prestigious, but that I, I'm not necessarily planning on living on as some great historical figure. I think that's really important for people to hear, right? It has less to do with achievement and more to do with that process that you're talking about, just kind of the yeah. liveness in the moment. Yes. You know, and and we asked people when they got to their 80s in our study, we, we asked them, look back on your life and tell us what you regret the most and what you're proudest of. Mm-hmm. And what they regretted the most, almost everybody, was that they hadn't spent enough time with the people they cared about and that they worried too much about what other people thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what they were proudest of was something to do with relationships. You know, I was a good parent. I was a good friend. I was a good mentor at work, you know? So it was all about connections. And I think those are the things in the moment and even beyond us that last, because, you know, most of it's going to pass away. Mm -hmm. And relationships, it occurs to me now, thinking about how we defined happiness earlier, are both, I think, hedonic and eudaimonic. They can Mm. be very pleasurable, right? Sitting with a best friend and having a beer or a cup of coffee is great, but also they're they're hard and they're annoying and they're frustrating. Exactly. You know, (laughs) like... But but maybe, you know, as a, we looked at studies about parents and they say, hey, it, it's not pleasurable, but it is very fulfilling in the long run or in the way that maybe a mentorship is or teaching yes. or anything, right? Yes. You know, and one of the, that's really important to name here because it can seem like I'm saying, gee, relationships have to be warm and fuzzy all the time. Not at all. You know, any relationship of of some depth has conflicts, has disagreements, and often the the richness in relationships is how we deal with our differences with each other, how we work out disagreements. And so it's important to remember that it's not going to be smooth all the time, but that when we work out disagreements well, it's incredibly rewarding and often we get closer to the people we disagree with. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just curious, I mean, are are there cases of people who are just kind of loners by nature and that that is their happy life? Like can a life of solitude also be gratifying? It it can be, absolutely. Uh, Some people really are nourished by solitude. They probably still need somebody in their life who they can go to in hard times, but that other than that, there are people who, for whom solitude is the right style of life. 
And, and so one size never fits all when we talk about human life. And, and we're all on a spectrum between introversion and extroversion. Well, it's been such a pleasure to be joined by Robert Waldinger, psychiatrist at Massachusetts General Hospital, professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He's also a Zen priest and co-author of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Robert, thank you so much for, for spending some time with us on the program. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Jonathan. This was a pleasure. Well, still to come, the happier hour. Our next guest talks about the role of time in our happiness. And now we'd love to hear from you. What is your experience with happiness? Are you naturally happy or do you need the company of others to feel happy? Do you believe that Robert Waldinger might be right and that relationships could hold the key to long-term well-being? Please chime in on our Facebook page. You can find it at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching on Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. We're trying to get to a thousand members and we're super close and we would love your help. It just takes a second to join the community. I'm Jonathan Bastian. This is Life Examined on KCRW. We'll be back after this short break. Stay close. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Professor Robert Waldinger, co-author of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness, talk about the importance of relationships in keeping healthy and happy. So when it comes to maintaining a happy lifestyle, are there some tips to stay focused on what matters most? How can time be both a problem and a solution? Professor Cassie Holmes is the author of Happier Hour, How to Beat Distraction, Expand Your Time, and Focus on What Matters Most. For the last four years, she's run a course called Applying the Science of Happiness to Life Design, which teaches frazzled MBA students how to make the most of their free hours and be a little bit happier. Holmes is Professor of Marketing and Behavioral Decision-Making at the UCLA Anderson School of Management, and she joins me now. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Um, well, you know, we heard from Robert Waldinger talk about the power of relationships and how that, that was so fundamental in his study of the longevity of happiness. Um, but I, and I know you would agree with a lot of that, but I think you also look at something else which is really important, which is time and how we use time. Why don't you give us a little sense of why you think that's so important? Yeah, I think... Um... Time is so important because how we spend the hours of our day sum up to the years of our lives. And as we're looking to sort of feel happier in our days and about our lives, it's crucial to understand how we invest this resource of time um, to make the most of the time that we have, the time that we're living and of our lives so we don't look back with regret. Hmm. I, there's a lot of terms that are thrown around these days, like time famine, for example, or time affluent. Um, I, I think this is becoming something that's more on our minds, no? 
Yeah, definitely. And I look, or I use the term time poverty, Hmm. which is the acute feeling of having too much to do and not enough time to do it. And it's on our minds because it's so prevalent. We conducted a national poll that showed that nearly half of Americans feel time poor. They feel like they don't have enough time to do what they set out to do. And not only is it really prevalent, it's really detrimental because our research has shown that when we feel time poor, it makes us less healthy. So we're less likely to exercise. It makes us less nice. We're less likely to slow down and help Mm -hmm. others out. It makes us less confident in being able to achieve our goals and we find that it makes us less happy. Mm-hmm. So, so walk us through some of the research you've been looking at in terms of effective ways to spend our time or the ways in which people feel that you know, their time has been meaningful to them. Yeah, and so there's a couple ways um, that folks can identify for them what are the worthwhile ways of spending in the research? Um, we use time tracking. So looking at what people are doing across their days, as well as how they're feeling. So we can pick up on average, what are those activities that tend to be associated with the most positive emotion? What are those activities that tend to be associated with the most negative emotion? The most positive um, activities are those socially connecting ones. Um, those that whether it's either connecting you intimately, sort of physically, or spending time with family and friends. But notably, not all of our social engagements do feel really connecting. So I encourage folks to actually track their own time and write down what they are doing and also rating coming out of that activity on a 10 point scale how they feel and being more specific than just socializing as the activity that you're doing but what are you doing and whom are you with and that will allow you to pick up on what are those ways of connecting and socializing that are truly Um, satisfying and truly fulfilling. And a big part of it is not just the activity that you're doing, but also the extent to which you're mentally engaged in that activity, that you aren't distracted. We are distracted so much of the time. Um, There was an interesting study by Dan Gilbert and Matt Killingsworth where they would ping people over the course of their day and ask what they're doing, as well as what they're thinking about. Namely, are they thinking about something other than what they're doing, as well as how happy they are. And what they found is that we are not thinking about what we are currently doing, as in our mind is wandering somewhere else almost half the time, 47% of the time. And that's not just, it's not sort of the particularly boring activities is across activities. And so that's to say that if you are spending time, you know, at a dinner with your family, on a coffee date with your daughter, which is one of my most joyful activities, if my mind is somewhere else, then you're sort of missing out on the potential happiness from that moment. So another, it's really important to make sure that when you're spending in those happy activities that you're really fully engaged. Mm. Um, and there's a couple ways that you know you can do that. One is carving it out as a no phone zone. So putting your phone 
away, out of sight is closer to out of mind. You're not reminded of all the other things that you maybe could be doing at that moment. But another is just recognizing how precious um, those moments are. Um, and that can come from counting. Counting times left, sometimes these most precious moments are so every day that we expect they will continue to happen every day. And so we take them for granted. We're rushing through them and again, thinking about something other than the person that we are with. Um, but that's false because time is passing and the circumstances of our lives and of the lives of those folks that we're sharing in those experiences are changing. And more often than not, if you calculate the number of times or even the percentage of total times in your life you have to do that activity that you have left, often it's far fewer, it's far more limited than you think. And that recognition leads you to pay attention, leads you to sort of totally savor those moments. Mm. Yeah, I, I love so much of what you said. And I, I just had this experience recently going out to this amazing sushi dinner and at a new restaurant and just taking a quick survey around of other couples that were eating. And I think it was something like 60 to 80% that I noticed were just on their phones, right? I mean, this is like yeah. the, the best food you could imagine. It was just two people kind of looking at their phones and picking at the food. And I, I've been there too. I mean, we probably all have, but it's, I think this gets to this point of, it's not just the social interaction. It's what's your mental state and your sense of presence within the social interaction, which I think is something that, as you alluded to in the age of the smartphone, gets really lost quickly. Yeah, and it's it's true, and it's even been shown in uh, experiments. So there is a sort of Q experiment conducted by Liz Dunn and her colleagues where they had friends dining together and they either sort of instructed them to put their phones away in their bag so they couldn't see them or to leave their phone on the table, which is sort of what we generally do, as you observed at the sushi restaurant. Um, and what they found was that simply having the phone away out of sight, those folks enjoyed the dining experience more because they were more engaged. Having the phone on the table made people enjoy their dining experience less um, because they were more distracted. Um, so something as simple as carving out those times as no phone zones. At, in my family, we absolutely do this, that when we are sitting down at the table, um, it is a no phone zone. And that is, it creates this opportunity for uh, deeper connection and better conversation because we are all there present together. Mm. Here's a little tip, and, and I wonder how you'd feel about it. Somebody shared this with me recently. If you're out to dinner and the person you're with steps up to go to the bathroom, I think there is now a <laughs> this feeling of like, oh, I'm going to grab my phone for like a minute and scroll or something like that, right? <laughs> He, and my friend said, I thought this was really interesting. He said, the next time that happens, don't pull your phone out. Just sit at the table and observe what is happening around you. Just look at the tables, look at the people, smell your food, have a glass of wine. And I, I don't know why that felt like such an interesting thing to say, but like I've noticed that that's something that's on my mind now when I have like a pause in a conversation or somebody steps away. Do, do you know what I'm saying? 
Yeah, and I think that's great because it, it does allow us to sort of pick our heads up and observe being present, not only sort of that connection with the people that we're with during these no phone zones, but the connection with the moment of being aware of what's happening around you, which is so freeing. Um, another thing that uh, one can do, and this is a strategy I talk about in Happier Hour, is turning these activities that sometimes seem routine into rituals. Um, and what's so fabulous about routines is it allows us to get through our days very effectively and efficiently by not having to pay too much attention. Um, but with that not paying attention, we're also not paying attention, right? We're not getting the um, ultimate sort of or potential happiness from that moment. And so, but by turning these routines into rituals, it makes them more special and meaningful. An example here is actually my, I referred, mentioned before, my weekly coffee date with my daughter, Lita. And this was born out of a very functional routine that is on Thursday mornings on my way to drop her off at her preschool and take me to my office. I wanted coffee and we would stop at the coffee shop for me to get my caffeine fix. But we turned it into a ritual. And so it became this thing that we anticipated. We have our coffee date playlist. Um, we order the same thing. She gets her hot chocolate. I get my flat white. We get croissants. And this is 30 minutes each week that we are just delighting in each other's company. And we've given it a name. So that's part of it. It's our Thursday morning coffee date, which actually now happens on the weekends because she starts school too early. Um, but it still has that name, our Thursday morning coffee dates. And it's something that we anticipate. So talking about the role of time and our happiness, it's not just the experience while you're doing that activity that can have an effect on your satisfaction and sense of connection. It's also that anticipation and that expectation that we do this thing. This is our thing and we do it in this special particular way. And then we remember it. We reflect back on it. And so those 30 minutes um, have a profound effect on my sense of connection with my daughter. Um, and from that, my overall satisfaction. And as a working parent, I unfortunately can't be at the pickup line, um, you know, at three o'clock every weekday. Um, and so but I absolutely feel very connected and have a wonderful relationship with my daughter, not just because of that coffee date, but I can say that the coffee date, the special ritual and tradition that we have is so instrumental mm. in maintaining that connection. 
Yeah, and there's something I think very powerful about the anticipation. This is I, I I'm not I don't have the quote exactly right, but 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 the the great French writer Flaubert said something like happiness exists in anticipation of the future, and I I, I like that and I don't like it because I think one can also be happy in the present and in the future. But I think there's something to be said about just having something to dream towards, to look towards, to be excited about. I remember seeing a study, for example, that couples are often happiest when they're just sitting together planning a vacation for the future, right? So I think they're having these things to kind of project forward into with a sense of optimism are really important. Yeah. And there's also related to couples, um, couples who have shared rituals report greater relationship satisfaction mm. and families who have shared holiday traditions are more likely to gather over the holidays and enjoy those holidays more and i think that part of uh to what you're saying is that power comes from the anticipation the expectation that you will um, gather together again in the future and mm. also connecting you to your past that this is some, like you have been gathering in this way um, over time. And so, again, to the sort of topic here of a sense of connection and belonging, these shared rituals, these shared traditions um, are so uh, powerful because they connected to these people across time. And I wonder if, as you grow older, I think you acknowledge that things do change and end. This is something I feel in myself. I don't, I'm not particularly old, but I just, I've seen things come and go now, or people in my life die or get sick, or um, just the nature of day-to-day -day life change. And I, and I wonder if that's maybe why older folks do have a certain appreciation of really simple things because they recognize that truth as they get older. And um, it, it, it kind of seems to make sense with a lot of the research in the way that you're framing it to me. Yeah. And it is, it is both that sort of recognition that time is ultimately limited, but also, as you said, that um, time is passing and things change. So we actually find that in our research that folks who take a broader perspective of time actually report greater meaning in their life, greater satisfaction, as well as greater happiness in their days. And I think that what happens when you think about years and life overall is like, yes, it puts things in perspective. But also what it does is when we think about our life overall, it clarifies what is important to us, mm -hmm. right? It clarifies what does matter. And with that clarity of what's important, it informs how we spend our hours today. And so, which is sort of I, the title of my book, Happier Hour, I, it's really when I, my perspective on time is that we should think about our years and our life, but we make decisions hour by hour. So being informed um, with this broader perspective of what's important, how do we spend the hours of today 
um, both on the activities that are important to us, but also while we're spending, you know, in those activities of making sure that we make them as worthwhile as possible, as fulfilling, so that at the end of the week, you know, instead of just feeling busy and exhausted and overwhelmed and like your schedule was full, you feel fulfilled because you have invested in those things that really matter to you. Well, I've been chatting with Cassie Holmes, author of Happier Hour, How to Beat Distraction, Expand Your Time and Focus on What Matters Most. She's professor of marketing and behavior decision-making at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. Cassie, thanks so much for the, this really interesting conversation. I appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks so much for joining us on KCRW for Life Examined. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you soon. Take care.